Welcome to the D-Shift Podcast, where we provide inspiration, motivation, and education to help you transition from the challenges of divorce to discover the freedom and ability to live life on your own terms. Are you ready? Let's get this shift started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the D-Shift, and I am super excited This is like my week to interview people from my old stomping grounds of British Columbia because we've had three people that I've interviewed last week from British Columbia. So this is going to be number three. This is Candice Platter, and she is an amazing person. I met her at an event called Potapalooza, and I was just captivated by the information and the invaluable support that she provides families. So um, Candice is an addictions therapist. She specializes in working with families of people with addictions. She is an international two-time award-winning author, and I am just thrilled to have Candice here. And Candice, welcome to The D-Shift. Thank you. Hi, everyone. And I would like to put you right into the fire here today, Candice, and ask you to what got you to this um, very specialized area of therapy that you work with people in and uh, kind of give us a little bit of background and why your passion is in this area. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to. I just want to let people know I've got a little bit of a voice thing, a throat thing going on today. Um, so if you hear me clearing my throat or something like that, just bear with me. So I think the, the relevant part of my story starts um in the early 70s, so that's about 50 years ago, I was uh, out with a friend for lunch, and within an hour or so, I was violently ill. And we both thought that it was food poisoning because it was those kinds of symptoms, you know, the kind of symptoms nobody wants to talk about. Um, and, and we both thought that's what it was, and it would just pass, but it didn't, and it wasn't that. And... Finally, it took a while. I was finally diagnosed with Crohn's disease. At that point, Crohn's was a very new disease, and doctors didn't know what to do for it. Um, Today, a lot of people know about Crohn's. They either have Crohn's or they know somebody who does. So it's an inflammatory bowel disease that can be very, very debilitating and painful and difficult to deal with, embarrassing, difficult. I'm a lot better now because I've learned how to take care of myself. I've had it for 50 years. There seems to be no known cause or cure for this thing. Um, But uh, at that point, because the doctors didn't know what to do, they, they had this young woman who was sobbing and always in pain in their office. And so they just gave me a whole lot of medication and, I didn't know because addiction was not on the radar back then at all. I had no idea what they were unleashing upon me. And I don't think they did either. I think today doctors know what they're doing a whole lot more than they did back then. And maybe that's another conversation we can have at some point. But, um, but you know, what they were giving me were Valium drugs um, they were giving me like Ativan and those kinds of drugs. They were giving me a lot of opioids. They were giving me uh, codeine and Demerol and uh, morphine and Oxycontin 
and just all of the, however much I wanted, I could get it renewed whenever I wanted. It was, it was, you know, heaven for me because not only did I like the feeling of being high, but I, I wasn't in so much pain. Right. And so, you know, and I smoked a lot more pot at that point too, because anything I could do to kind of escape my very difficult reality at that time is what I did, but it went on for a lot of years. And so I was basically an opioid addict without even knowing it for about 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing about those drugs, including pot is that they are depressants in the human system they're not like cocaine that, you know, makes you feel wonderful and high. It, they're, they're depressants. And at the end of that time, at the end of those years, I was so depressed that I was actually suicidal. I didn't want to live anymore. I had enough pills I could take. I really had a decision that I needed to make. And I knew it was going to be the most important decision ever. Do I live or do I die? Do I stay or do I go? You know, right. Um, right. Obviously, I stayed. What I did was I picked up the phone and I called the Vancouver crisis line. Uh, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. And somebody at the end of that phone line saved my life just by listening to me and respecting me and hearing my pain and not minimizing me, you know, because the doctors were trying to tell me it was all in my head, which it was not. Sure. Um, So you know, that was kind of the beginning of my recovery. And then I started going to uh, 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, um, Codependence Anonymous, all the anonymous groups, you know. And, And that was a real beginning for me of opening my eyes to what was going on for me in my life and why I was so depressed and why I was using these drugs aside from the Crohn's, which was legitimate. Right. I was using them a lot because of emotional pain that I'd been in my whole life, really. Um, So I went to those programs for about 10 years of my recovery. Uh, I'm 35 years clean and sober now, 35 consecutive years. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not even sure how that happened, but here it is. Um, And uh, as I started to really, you know, I don't quite know how to say it, but as as some of the filters went away and I could see things clearly, for me what happened, and I know this isn't everybody's experience, but what happened was I I listened to what they were saying in those rooms, in the 12-step rooms. They were talking about addiction being a disease. Mm Mm-hmm. They were talking about addiction being that I was powerless over my disease, that I would relapse. If I didn't go to a meeting every day, I was going to relapse for the rest of my life. I was going to relapse, you know, and um, and that that was a normal, natural part of recovery. So I started to take notice of these kinds of teachings that were like dogma and still mm-hmm. are in those programs. And I have a medical disease. I know what having a disease is like. I can't get rid of Crohn's try as I might. It just doesn't. It goes into remission. It comes back. 
but I so I can't get rid of Crohn's, but I can get rid of addiction. I was 10 years clean and sober. And they're telling me I'm powerless over this and that I'm going to relapse. I'd never relapsed. I'd had occasion to. I'd, I'd had, I had to have surgery and I had to be on painkillers for a little while. I made a decision to stop that. You know, what I, what I knew was that I had made a choice. I had made a decision to be clean and sober in my life. And if people want to look at it as a disease, because yes, there's brain involvement, of course, of course. But, you know, there's brain involvement in every single thing we do, like me moving my finger, you know, right. There's brain involvement. That's how we're wired. So just saying that, that there's brain involvement in addiction doesn't make it a disease per se, a medical disease. So, um, I just knew that I was not powerless over this. I had been making that decision every day for 10 years. And I started moving away from those programs and looking at it differently. So, you know, there's a lot of different um, schools of thought about addiction and what it really is. Some people think of it as a disease. Some people think that it's because of a genetic predisposition. And maybe that's true, but the scientists have not yet made a real delineation with that. Right. Like in the 35 years I've been in recovery, the scientists have been looking at this and still haven't come to a conclusion. But I see it in the families I work with. I see it in the generations of these families. So I don't know if it's a predisposition or whether it's something learned in the home. Right. You know, when the when the going gets tough, you do something to not have to feel it. Like a coping that strategy. Could be what yeah. It is. yeah. Yeah. A coping strategy. Right. So, but underneath all of that, if you want to look at it as a disease or predisposition or whatever, underneath that is a choice that people make to either stay in addiction once they're in it. I don't think anybody chooses to become an addict. Nobody says, gee, I think I'll be an addict. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's crazy. But once we're in it, we have a choice about whether we're going to pick up that phone and get help, go to a meeting, decide to stay clean and sober right. or not, right? To stay in addiction or to stay in or to go into recovery is a choice that people make and we make it every day. And everybody, everybody that's in recovery now knows that that's true. Right. We all know that that's true. Okay. So that, I think, I think as addicts, we know that that's true too, but. So that's, that's, that's a really interesting, thank you for sharing that because it is really confusing for, um, and, and, and I, we were talking a little bit before the, before we started this um, interview, but a lot of the times I, and I was saying, I work with a lot of clients who have said they have stayed in a relationship that they knew was toxic. They knew was over. They knew was, unhealthy, but they stayed yep. in it because they were afraid of what would happen to the addict if they left and that person was on their own. And they just felt that they would be ringing the death knell for that individual if they walked out the door for them. And what I'm hearing you say is that may not be the reality because ultimately it's that addict's choice every day, whether they use or get help or go on the path to recovery or go farther down the addiction road is what I'm hearing you say. I believe that with all of my heart, all of my soul, 
the the person that's going to ring that death knell, if that knell is rung, is the addict themselves. Nobody can make, nobody could have made me decide to kill myself. Nobody could have made me decide not to kill myself if I was hell bent on killing myself. Okay. It's a choice. We all, this is a planet of free will. And addicts who are still in active addiction, I call people addicts. Sometimes people think that's stigmatizing, but, you know, we're addicts. Let's call it what it is. Um, people who, who choose to stay in active addiction are some of the most manipulative people walking the planet. And I was, too, when I was in it. We kind of have to be. It's kind of our job, you know. So... So one of the things that addicts like to do is gaslight. And gaslighting is when you throw it onto somebody else. You throw your own pain onto somebody else. You slime someone else, basically. So, you know, the addicts manipulate their loved ones who are so scared and so desperate and don't know what to do because there's not a lot of help out there for the family members, for the spouses or the siblings or the parents, you right. know. Um, and, and they say, well, you know, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that there's a, a joke. It's called a joke. It's not a funny joke, but it's, it's something that people say in Alcoholics Anonymous that you drink too, if you had a wife like mine, you drink too, if you had a wife like mine. Well, that's ridiculous. You're drinking because you want to drink period, full stop. Right. It has nothing to do with anybody else in your life. I don't care what they're doing or not doing. Or you're, There's a lot of ways to deal with life differently than just, you know, self-sabotage. Right. So, yeah. so, so what, the, what the addict or alcoholic or whatever um, child uh, would want to say to the parent or the loved one is, it's your fault. You're a rotten mother. You're a terrible wife. Look what you do to me. Look how you are with me. And. And they, the loved ones believe that because often they've come from families that helped them believe that about themselves, that they were responsible for everything right. that they weren't responsible for. So they grow up and they have relationships with people or, or, or um, contribute in, in their children's lives to this dynamic going on because that's what they know to do. It's what they know to do. They don't want to do that. They don't mean to do that. Right. And, 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 and what loved ones don't understand is how important, how vital they are to this whole situation and that they have so much, um, I don't want to say power because I don't mean control kind of power, okay. but they have so much influence if they're doing the right even if they're doing the wrong things, if they're doing the right things or the wrong things, they have so much influence over how the situation is going to evolve. So they might as well learn how to do the right things. And that's where somebody like me comes in. Okay. So, so this, this is a really great question for, because a lot of the people listening in um, today are probably uh, in the divorce or, or post-divorce. They may be co-parenting with somebody who's addicted, or they may be um, trying to make a decision whether or not to leave somebody who's addicted. So can you talk a little bit about that whole 
enabling codependency sort of dynamic that gets going that you, you started, you know, you touched on it a little bit, but could you maybe talk about how to stop doing that and start actually doing, like you said, those positive influence things that are going to help yourself and maybe help the addict. I don't know if that's possible, but. Yeah, definitely it's possible. Yeah. And, and what I'll just, I'll just respond to what you said about the divorce um, situation in these families. Um, When sometimes what happens is that the spouses are not addicted. There isn't, you know, they're not put divorcing a spouse because somebody's addicted, but they, their child, maybe their adult child, their son or daughter is addicted. And the two parents are dealing with this in very different ways. For example, the husband, the the wife, it's usually the woman. It just is, but sometimes it's the man, but it's usually the woman, the wife, who the mother, who's, um, who's enabling, who's doing everything she can for the, she just wants the help and she's doing everything she can kind of thing. And the husband is kind of like the father's like, uh, so you've got two very distinct ways of dealing with it. And there's a lot of conflict with the parents, with the husband and wife around that. And sometimes that can cause divorce as right. well. Right. So it's not, it's not always the spouse's addiction that causes the divorce, but it often is. That's a great um, point. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I see that yeah. quite often that there's there, you know, they, the, 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 the couple divorcing, you're right, has no addiction problem. It's the adult child or the, the, you know, young, young adult child or older adult child. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, uh, an addict can be 50 years old and come back and live with mom and dad because they're still using, they're still involved in the addiction because the parents haven't known how to help rather than enable. Nobody's told them. There just isn't a lot of information out there that that really works, you know, for the loved ones of people with addiction. And it's like, the family members, and sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's colleagues, sometimes it's, it isn't always family, but whoever is the loved one of the addict who's still using is sitting in the same roller coaster car with them, right next to them. Sure. And it is a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster of chaos. And so when, when the addict is doing okay in their lives, and sometimes there are times when they are, then the loved one is doing okay because they're in the same roller coaster. Right. And if, and if, and, and when it starts going down and things aren't doing that well for the addict, then the loved one goes down too and starts worrying and obsessing and, you know, making everything about them. So to, to get into a little bit about the difference between enabling and actually helping, I like really, um, simple definitions. So the definition I've come up with around enabling is when you do for somebody else what they can and actually should be doing for themselves on a pretty consistent basis. Okay. So it's also a codependent stance to enable somebody else. And my definition of codependency kind of joins in with the definition for enabling is when you put other people's needs ahead of your own on a consistent basis and your own needs go on the back burner. Right. 
And so many people who are loved ones of addicts grew up in dysfunctional families and learned how to be codependent. And they felt like that was kind of their role to put everybody's needs ahead of their own. And that's how they stayed safe in some pretty unsafe situations. Until that's healed, you just keep carrying that around. You just keep doing that. So enabling behaviors are... Some of the typical ones are, of course, giving money to an addict when you know where that money is going to go. Right. It's going to go down their throat, into their arm, up their nose, whatever. Right. You know, and you're still, mom, I need 20 bucks. Well, 20 bucks doesn't seem like that much. And if I don't give it to him or her, he's going to get really mad at me. And I don't like conflict as a codependent person. I don't like conflict. I'll do anything I can to avoid conflict because I've never learned how to deal with conflict in a good way. Um, So, okay, okay, here's 20 bucks. And you know you shouldn't be giving the 20 bucks. You know it's not a good thing to do. You do it anyway. You feel guilty. You feel shameful. You feel all of these things when you're enabling So another example of enabling would be allowing an addict to live in the family home without contributing very much, if at all, to the family home. Right. And that could be a spouse. That could be a spouse who maybe has lost their job because they kept being late or they weren't going to work or their work performance was suffering and they were fired, Um, you know, with the codependent spouse will do is call up the workplace and say, oh, he can't come in today because he's sick, you know, and that only goes so far. But again, when you lie for an addict or you do something that you know is detrimental to the addict, right? when you enable like that, you don't feel good about yourself. Your self-respect, which is such an important piece of all of this, takes a definite hit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so what needs what what loved ones need to understand is that enabled addicts don't recover because really why should they? Yeah. They're, they're do in their zone, right? <laughs> you know, you want to come enable me? I'll go I'll, I won't work for a while, you know. Yeah. Enabled addicts don't recover. So by giving the 20 bucks, by letting them stay in the home and, and sleep all day and drink or use all night and, and, and just really kind of be, be, be emotionally terrible, verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive, that's not helping the addict. Yeah. That keeps the addict stuck in the addiction because yeah. they have no incentive to come out of the addiction. Right. Right. So enabling is never a loving act. Yeah. It might feel loving to you at the time. Yeah. Here's 20 bucks. But you know, it isn't. You know, it's not. You know, this doesn't make sense. And it keeps the addict stuck. So what loved ones need to 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 learn is that by saying no to an addict, by having really loving, healthy Boundaries, boundaries that are yes. self-respecting to oneself, right? But that that are loving toward the addict to have boundaries that have attached to those boundaries a consequence that means something to the addict, 
if you keep doing this, then this will happen and you probably won't like it kind of kind of deal. Right. Is actually, you know, people call it tough love. And they and a lot of people say, oh, I don't like tough love, you know. But tough love is love and it's actually I think the most loving kind of love there is. Right. Because you're saying, I don't want to support your addiction anymore. I want to support your recovery. Right. So I am going to say no to you when you want 20 bucks from me, because I know you're going to buy drugs with it. So I'm not going to support you and your addiction anymore. I love you so much. I love you so much. Even if I don't always like you, (laughs) I love you so much. I am not going to do things that keep your addiction going. And I think that's a, that's a great perspective. And we have, this has gone too fast, Candace. We have got to we have got to have another one of these because this time just has flown by. I mean, this is this is, I think, really important for us all, because most people, if we don't know an addict, we know a family who's dealing with somebody who is in addiction or is struggling with it. So everybody does. Every, yeah. I mean, it's so rampant now. Yeah. With, with all this information you shared, Candace, what what would you like to boil it down to one one or two sentences that you think people should remember when they turn off this podcast and go about their daily business? What would you like them to remember? I would like them to remember that addicts can change. They, I'm perfect example of that. I'm living proof of it because I have not always been this person you see here. And what it takes is helping them get to a place where they have the incentive to do that. And as the loved one, you play this integral part. You're so important to this whole equation. Um, Whether you know it or not, you really are. And if you don't know what to do, I'm going to suggest that you reach out to my company, which is Love With Boundaries. It's called Love With Boundaries because we need to love addicts and we need to love them with boundaries. Great. So that's a that's a perfect scenario or a perfect segue into the next question I'm going to ask you. If if people do want to get hold of you at Love With Boundaries, what's the best way to do that? The best way to do it is go to lovewithboundaries.com. I'm I'm going to be changing up my website a little bit, not a whole lot, but um, it should still be functional uh, while that's happening. So go to lovewithboundaries.com. And you will see um, a link to a questionnaire to fill out. What we offer is a free 30-minute intake consultation. So we we will give you 30 minutes free to tell us about what's going on with you. We will tell you how we work. We'll see if it's a fit. If it is, we're just gonna keep going. And if it's not, that's just fine. It's no strings, no obligation. If you're in trouble, if you don't know what to do, if you would like to kind of nip this in the bud before it gets to be too troublesome, um, if you know someone who's having this situation, then please tell them about Love With Boundaries. We would love to hear from, from you, from them. This is happening all over the world in families wonderful families all over the world. It's not anything to be ashamed of anymore. It's something to get help with so that we can kick addiction to the curb. We can if we stop enabling. 
Yeah. I love that message. Candace, thank you so much. And all of Candace's information is in the show notes. Um, I'm and uh, Candace, what are the what are the titles of your two books? If people want to take a look at what you what you yes, bring? I have them right here. The the one I'm best known for is Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. It's the top ten survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. Great. And the other one is uh, a workbook that goes with it. Okay. So it's Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself, the workbook. Wonderful. And um, yeah, um, it's a very good workbook, a lot of really good information and questions for people who are loved ones. Please don't give my books to your addicts. My, the addicts do not like my books. They hate my books because <laughs> yes. I'm talking about boundaries. I'm talking about saying no, you know, but but so these are for you if you're a loved one. Please, I hope you'll take a look at them. And thank you. And yes, people, please, if you are dealing with this, you do not have to deal with it on your own. I always say you don't have to do your divorce by yourself. And Candace is saying you don't have to deal with um, being a loved one of an addict on your own. There is support out there. So please, 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 not just for um, not just for yourself. But if you know a family that's struggling, um, give them Candace's information and let's see if we can't get some help for those those people that are trying to help their loved ones move from addiction into recovery. Candace, thank you so much for being on the D shift. And I look forward to having you on for another, another conversation a little bit later. Sure. I'd love that. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening and supporting the D shift podcast. If you would like to attend live trainings by our amazing guests and have a chance to ask questions and get answers from our experts, join the D shift crew for more details and to sign up, Head on over to www.divorcecoachforwomen and click on the podcast page.